0: I bring you greetings from the brethren I serve, Indiana, Kentucky, Illinois. We have a few in Illinois that attend in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, the churches in Michigan where Mr. Jason Fritz is serving as the associate pastor and doing a wonderful job. And then also we have, uh, we get a little bit into Mr. Wally Smith's area and that we have a congregation in Lima, Ohio that uh, is served from the michigan churches and so i bring you greetings from those brethren i know that all of us look to headquarters as the example and the pattern that we seek to follow if you would turn in to your in your bible to first corinthians chapter 15 refer to this particular chapter as the resurrection chapter. The word resurrection in the Greek simply means to stand again from below. That you have in fact been put below the ground and now you once again are standing. In our society we'd probably say you're smelling the roses. But the meaning very clearly, is that your life has been restored. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we find that the Apostle Paul literally was addressing an issue that was in the church of God. And I would like to start there in verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is preached that he has not been raised from the dead, or that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. Whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead did not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. No, you know, brethren, why would we be here? Except for that promise, the promise of life. Said, so if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So that's a very core doctrine. It's very important that we understand what the Scripture says, that it's a part of our vision, our understanding, our hope. And you know, brethren, it's helpful that we are reminded from time to time of that goal, that we're not here for the things of this present life. We're here for the promises that lie ahead. He goes on to say, it says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Does that mean that the Christian walk, the way of life that God has revealed to us, that living by commandments that teach us morality, faithfulness, honesty, loyalty, whether in marriage or relationships? Does that mean that's wrong and that's not an abundant way of life? No, that's not the intent. That's not what Paul's talking about. What he's talking about is that we have a great hope. is something we desire. is something that many of God's servants literally gave their life. Their life was cut short. But if that's empty if it was for no reason, then we certainly will be greatly disappointed. The proverb that speaks of having a hope and having it disappointed. That's what the Apostle Paul is speaking about. Putting trust and faith in something and coming up with an empty hand. We certainly will see today that that's not true. We have substantial evidence for our hope and God's given us an assurance that we can totally trust in and put our faith in. And so he says if if it were not true we would certainly be pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. No one has been raised to this point in time except our Lord and Savior. Abraham, David, they all await the resurrection. So, by the very reality, there's only one. At this point in time, it gives us a very clear focus in addressing the subject and understanding. The promise that God has given. Now, why do we need a resurrection? Well, the first and obvious reason is that we would be dead. Now, that's not obvious to everyone that teaches Christ because they believe they possess already an immortal soul. It's interesting to open up the Catholic Encyclopedia and read about the resurrection. You see, the Bible tells us, and we clearly know, that, no, we die. We're asleep. And without a resurrection, we have no life. So the first need of a resurrection is for life. The second is that there is no hope without the resurrection. Why are we doing it? There's no reason or purpose. Death renders life null and void. And, of course, in the Scripture, the Bible makes it plain. Paul said it. We would still be in our sins. We would continue with our sins. That's what he said here. We just read it. So Christ is the example I'd like to point that out to you in Hebrews chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, here speaking to the Jewish brethren, he expounded Jesus Christ. And as you go through the entire book, you realize that he lays the foundation of Christ, that he is the very Son of God. And then he speaks of Christ in relationship to literally being the captain of our salvation. Then he goes on and he literally expounds as he moves forward into Jesus Christ as our high priest, the sacrifice for our sin. And then as he goes through the book, he tells us to be motivated with the knowledge, not only the promises of God, but by the example of those who preceded us. But his focus through the book is... On Jesus Christ both as our high priest the office that he serves within the church of God today and going to God before us as we appeal to God and through his sacrifice whether for healing brethren or for forgiveness in Hebrews chapter 2 Paul quoted from the Old Testament he said but one testified in a certain place saying What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And Paul goes on to say... For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing. It's interesting he does that because we understand at times in the Hebrew language that all means a vast majority. But in this case, he clarifies. He doesn't leave it to the, I guess you would say, general meaning of the word. He goes on to say, he left nothing. And so it's not 99%, because there are times in the Scripture it talks about all being saved. And yet we know that that's not completely true. It's the vast majority. But in this case, he clarifies. He makes it very plain. He left nothing that is not under him. But now... We do not yet see all things put under him. I think it's very clear in this that Paul is not speaking of the Father. We worship the Father. He's our God, our Father. Nor is he speaking of Jesus Christ. But he is speaking of God's family that we will be a part of. But notice what it says in verse 9. As these things have not yet happened. Verse 9, but we see Jesus. The example and what we do see is Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Later in this same chapter, he makes it clear that Christ took on him the seed or nature of Abraham that he was flesh and blood. Prior to this, it makes it very plain that man was made a little lower than the angels. So he's speaking of the humanity of Jesus Christ who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. It's flesh and blood. Subject to death. And he literally, as our Savior, died, crowned with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus Christ is identified here as the captain of our salvation. But brethren, he's also identified as the example. It's where we can look and see and understand the very promise that God has given of the resurrection. It's interesting because... It was also the sign that Jesus chose as the authority of his ministry. Notice in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew 12, we find here a situation where the Pharisees and Sadducees, they wish to, in some manner, discredit the miracles and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so they accused him of working not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. And he very, very strongly and straightforwardly corrected them. And the words he spoke, it's interesting, were so strong and so straightforward that they could not rebuff what he said. But their response Notice Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered. This was their answer, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now think about this. They already literally said to him, Well, the things you've been doing, they knew of the miracles, they knew of the healings and the casting out of demons. But they would not accept that. But now suddenly all at once, because they were corrected, well, you've got to do sp- something special for us. It's interesting how Christ answered them. He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign would be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah so Christ didn't say there would not be a sign. He said there was only one sign that he focused on. And what was that sign? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's a sign that is rejected by mainstream Christianity. They do not accept that Christ was in the earth three days and three nights. They try to explain it by saying, well, in the Greek, this means parts of three days and nights. But that's an idiom in the Greek language. And Christ wasn't referring to a Greek as the example. He specifically was referring to Jonah. And the language in the Old Testament In the Hebrew language, when you say three days and three nights, it means three days and three nights. If you really want to be technical, you also, if you look and understand God's truth, you realize Christ was not resurrected on Sunday. It was as the Passover ended that he was put into the grave and the stone was rolled to cover the grave. He was resurrected then three days and three nights later at the end of the Sabbath. If you don't understand that, there's an excellent source, but it's many years old. It's not new understanding. Others who have examined the Scripture have literally gone through and looked for what does the Bible literally say? You'll find the Companion Bible written by Bullinger. Today is fairly cheap, really. At one time, it was kind of hard to get, but it no longer is copyrighted or protected. It has a very thorough index in its appendices of the events that transpire. And, of course, in the Church of God, and through keeping God's holy days, we have the same understanding. It's very clear. But the very sign that Jesus Christ gave was, in fact, that he would be dead. That he would die for three, and be dead for three days and three nights and be resurrected. That he would live. When Paul wrote of the resurrection, he spoke of those who witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading in verse 3, he says, "...for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures." And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once. Now, it's interesting, we don't tend to think of it, but this was before Pentecost. There were a number of brethren who had followed the ministry. And how many? Many. It's interesting, we see literally right after Pentecost there were thousands baptized, but the church continued to multiply and grow. But the Bible tells us very straightforwardly Christ was witnessed, the resurrected Christ, by over five hundred brethren at one time. We have two hundred and twenty three here today. The double this audience, and we still fall short. Of that number. Now, I know Mr. Meredith, he was, he's from Missouri, and that's the show-me state. (laughs) Well, you don't totally have to be from Missouri to have that attitude, (laughs) because I know for sure that if I lived at that time, and I had an interest in what was being taught, that if I had within my power the means to go and find one of these people. Because see, Paul says, when he speaks of the five hundred, he said, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. So it's not five hundred now available, but the greater part. And I don't believe he was talking about two hundred and fifty one. Now, Corinth was a city where people traveled and traded. And I suspect that some would have had opportunity and would have gone to find some of those who were present. What was it like? What took place? How many? And you know something? If you've traveled into the area where the 500 people were together, especially in a society that's not as mobile as our society, you would not ask one. You would find out, well, who else was present? And then you would perhaps put together a little bit of a a mental notebook of what did this person say, and then go over to the next person and say, well, could you tell me? And you know what would happen if you do that? You might see four, five, maybe 10 people. It would lose credibility if their stories varied. But they would not. They may see a somewhat different perspective, depending on where they stood or their position, just as we would, perhaps, if we saw an automobile accident. And depending on what corner you were standing, you would see it a little differently. But you would still see the same thing when you put the pieces together. And I'm absolutely certain, knowing human nature, knowing by nature that I would seek to find out. But there's also the reality that as you learn and you go from one person to another to another, because at that time, men and women, they kept their word. That was their trust. And the story was the same. You would begin to do what? You would believe. We have a powerful testimony in God's Word, one that if we looked at any other source of history or written document, would be considered clear evidence. And God's made that very plain. Now, there may have been others as well. Paul doesn't say. I suspect Paul specifically spoke of the largest group. But it's possible there may have been 20, 30, 50 other groups as well. But we know for certain there were 500. And when Paul wrote, the majority of them were still alive. That also gives very strong authority to the words of the Apostle Paul. Because he had witnesses. And he was referring to those witnesses. It was a number of years ago in the transition in the Global and Living Church of God. I had a report. I acted upon it. A lot of people tried to question it. And because I communicated about it, I finally, in frustration, wrote, because it took place in the state of Michigan. I wrote to some of those who were skeptics, and I said, look, there is a cloud of over 100 witnesses of God's people in the state of Michigan. If you don't believe me, check with a few of them. No one again responded in criticism to my report. It stopped. The Apostle Paul says there were 500 witnesses. So God's given us powerful evidence just in the witness of those who saw the very resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, is that the only witness? No. There's some who say, well, you don't find the name of Christ anywhere in public documents. That's not true. You can simply go on the Internet, type in Jesus Christ, any kind of wit- and you will immediately see there were several documents, several various historical references to Jesus Christ. But what, you, what is even more powerful is how Christianity mushroomed throughout the Roman Empire. It was like a wildfire that spread across the empire. Only a few years ago, I was reading about the events in Egypt. And i always known that there was a segment or a part of that population that are basically mainstream or Orthodox Christian. When I say Orthodox is through the Eastern Orthodox Church. Most of them, not all. But I was surprised to find in history that from about 100 to 600, the nation of Egypt was a Christian, that's the title we use in this world, a Christian nation. That the majority of its people started using the name of Christ, if you start reading about what happened in that period of history, you find that Christianity or the name of Christ spread. Why? Well, he was just a popular guy. (laughs) No. There were hundreds of witnesses of his resurrection. There were also witnesses in Jerusalem of people at the time of his death that some knew and they saw them physically brought back to life. They didn't see them literally resurrected. They saw them suddenly on the streets. Some may have attended their burial or perhaps were family. Events took place that shook the world. Not in the way that we would today because they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have... Literally today, an event takes place. You can get ahead of your you know, news station. You can go to YouTube. And with, sometimes within minutes, someone is, someone is posting what transpired the other side of this planet. For something such as the movement of Christianity that moved across, not that all were Christian, Not that God called all of them, but there was something very powerful that took place, and that was the knowledge of the resurrected Jesus Christ. So God's given us a very powerful witness of the promises given to us. Now with that, it's amazing that in the church of God, there would be those. Let's go back to where we started in 1 Corinthians 15. And this time, verse 12. It says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How could you be in the church of God and begin to think there's no resurrection? Where would such an influence come from? Where would that idea even be planted? Why? Well, the Bible reveals to us that among the Jewish people, there were two sects that were dominant, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They simply did not believe it. That was their teaching. And I'd like to spend a few minutes looking at that because there's lessons that I think are helpful. It's important to realize that the influence actually touched God's people. Those to whom the Apostle Paul preached Jesus Christ resurrected. That clearly was why they had become a part of the Church of God. Let's notice starting in Matthew chapter 22. Because we see here, they used some of their confusion. And undoubtedly, this was one of the arguments they had, because it's clear in the Bible, and we'll see that. I'll I'll give you a little guidance. I may not necessarily cover it, but you can go and read. If I have time, I will. But here we find in Matthew chapter 22... That these Sadducees challenged Christ. It's interesting in this chapter. You see that various ones came to Christ. It first came up with the subject which we're all sensitive to: Do you really have to pay your taxes? You know, can, can we get out of that? <laughs> I think if Christ had said yes, there would probably have been a lot more followers. <laughs> but he said, "No, you render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar." And to God, what belongs to God. But we then find, here's another group. This time it's the Sadducees. Verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said... Now, as you read through this, they basically say, here's this woman. She married... She had no children, but she the man dies, she marries again, and he goes through, and of course they take it to the extreme. But the reality was, why did they raise this question? Well, it was a question they themselves could not answer. It was a question in a situation that provoked them to argue there's no resurrection. The only logical conclusion, if you apply the laws and the Torah to this situation, is, well, there is no no resurrection. We don't have to worry about it. And how did Christ respond to them? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, what Christ said to them is very interesting because the Sadducees particularly prided themselves in knowing the Scriptures. They rejected a number of the writings and the Talmud that the Pharisees, they felt, had added. They prided themselves in that we keep the Torah. We do not add to it. We do not subject ourselves to those judgments. And yet, in their pride, Christ said, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Now, you and w- without understanding, you would tend to think, Well, he's sort of answering something. But we'll see, and I'll point it out to you in just a minute. See, they did not believe in angels either. <laughs> they had a different understanding. Because, see, if you don't believe in a resurrection, then you have problems with angels in the spirit world. In fact, maybe we could just quickly notice it here. It speaks in Acts 23 and verse 8. It says, For Sadducees, that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confessed both. The Bible itself tells us this was something that was a part of their denial. And so when Christ said this, again, that's probably something they would have had difficulty receiving. But he said it. He knew what they taught. He goes on then to say... But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You go back and you look and you will find Exodus, is where this is a reference to. You see, why did Christ use that reference? because I'm going to show you in a couple of minutes here, there's some other very clear references and descriptions in the Old Testament that speak of the resurrection. Christ used this because he knew they prided themselves in the knowledge and following the instruction of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But it also, if they had thought it through... But it made it very plain that, no, there is a resurrection. There is life. Now, let's notice a few passages that really in the Scripture make it very plain. In the Old Testament, the promise of the resurrection. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. Let's read. Actually, we'll start in verse 1. Daniel 12. says, at that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands, watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. I do not know how the Sadducees debated this. I suspect, I would think anyway, the Pharisees would bring it up because they would debate, they would argue. It's very plain language. Some to everlasting life. Very plainly, they sleep where? In the dust of the earth. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. Just notice what Job said. And and you'll find other scriptures. I don't want to dwell on this too long. My reason for going here, brethren, is to help us understand what was happening in God's church. Notice in Job, and we'll come back to some of the lessons perhaps we can think about, and I'm sure there are others that I have not thought of, but in the book of Job, we read what Job said. He speaks again of man, and it's most helpful if you actually read the entire chapter down to the verses that we will read. But in Job chapter 14, and in verse 14... says, if a man dies, shall he live again? Wow, that's, that's the question. <laughs> that's the heart. If you die, will you live again? Job says, all the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the works of your hands clearly speaks of a change that God would literally desire the fruit or the works of what he has created. There's other passages as well. You read in Isaiah 66 of a birth of a nation, speaking of literally the first resurrection. You'll find where David often speaks of praising God forever and ever. And the Bible promised that David would be what? King of Israel forever. And in the prophecies he speaks of that future. And yet here were men who prided themselves in the Scripture who clearly ignored one of the very basic teachings and promises of the Scripture. Why? brethren sometimes people get focused and narrow in what's important to them and they'll turn because if you read about the Sadducees one of the aspects that they clearly sought to protect and often argued with the Pharisees regarding was the inheritance of the land they talked about if parents only had a daughter Who should inherit? The Pharisees, if there were sons of the grandparents, they believed the land should then be divided according to the grandparents of the daughter. In other words, they would look to the other side of the family, not on the one side, for inheritors. They argued that. They would not accept that. There were other areas of differences as well, and their belief literally blinded them. Their preconceived ideas, rather than looking openly at the Scripture and saying, what does God say? What is His Word? They did not do that. In the New Testament, God tells us of the Bereans. I happened, by the way, to pastor the church of Berea. At one time, I pastored, to my knowledge, the only churches in the living church of God that met in the upper room. And also at the same time, I was a pastor in Berea. Now in Cincinnati, at that time, we were meeting in the upper room of a hall. (laughs) And so I would tell the brethren, we had fun about it, but we have a wonderful small group in Berea, wonderful brethren there. But the scripture tells us of the Bereans. And what was their spirit? They listened, kept their mouths shut, went home, and did what? Proved whether those things were in the word of God. They got their Bible out. And they began to read and study. And they proved whether those things were in God's Word. God gives us that example. It's interesting, if the brethren in Corinth had followed that example, none of them would have been literally in a position of doubt. Because I suspect what transpired were issues that created doubt. God does not, rather teach us in a manner of doubt. When God gives us the promises, the Scripture very clearly tells us in the book of Hebrews, and I'll just mention it and point out a couple things in Hebrews chapter 6, that God not only gave the promises, that He wanted us to have a strong conviction. He wanted us to be sure of what we believe. And so he not only gave the promises and clearly revealed them and the circumstances surrounding them, and in the New Testament we find them expounded, the Apostle Paul also understood that in doing this, God wanted that we would be absolutely assured of them. And so what did God do? Well, we read in Hebrews chapter 6, the last part of the chapter, Verse 14, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. That was God's promise. Verse 13 says, but when God made a promise to Abraham because he he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. God gave the promises and an oath it may not mean quite as much to us in our society because we would want it in writing. That's our society. And you know what? God provided it in writing. (laughs) It's on your lap. And to those who wanted a word, God not only gave them the word and the history of it, then He swore by oath. What was his purpose? Why did he do this? Verse 17, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. That hope is the resurrection. That hope literally are the promises God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Men who confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims and who look for a country. And God is not ashamed to be called their God says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And that's why it's so important, brethren, that we, on a regular basis, look at the promises that God has given. Look at the reality of and the evidence of and the promise of the resurrection. It's an anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast. An anchor to someone in rough seas is a type of security. Generally speaking, if you know the weather is going to be rough, you don't go to a harbor. If you do, it's safe. You go to a safe harbor. But often you do not have that available. And so what do you do? Well, you get away from the land. Because the greatest danger to a ship is literally land. And so you move away. But you still have to control the ship. You have to keep the bow pointed into the way. And there are different types of anchors. There are anchors that secure you. They go to the ground and they bury in. Or by their very weight, they will hold you in place. But that's generally not the type of anchor you use in really rough seas. There's an anchor that is very much, if you were to take a funnel and created of cloth, and then tie ropes to it, but it would still have an opening. And you would throw it in the water. And what it does, it creates a drag. It gives, because see, the water will flow through it. It's not. It won't necessarily just hold you and jerk, because it has the give of having a small opening, just like a funnel. And so you throw that in the water, you tie that to the bow of your ship, particularly today if you have a modern boat or a fishing vessel and you lose power, it's very important you have that type of anchor. You throw it out, what does it do? It holds you in the right position. And so as the waves come, your bow, you do not turn side. the very force of the wave corrects your position. It provides safety. God made promises to us, brethren, that we would have the confidence and surety, the trust that we can literally give our lives. God's given us a witness of the resurrection through His servants and through the Word of God. And as I said, we not only have the Word, we have it. You know, it's our society want it in writing. (laughs) We have it in writing. It's interesting that God would do it at a time when that's the approach of so many people. Not that it's brand new. We certainly find there were old documents uh, in various times in history, but we have it in a way that it's not been available for the vast majority of history. We each have copies, and I suspect most of you have several. I certainly do. In fact, of this particular edition of the New King James, I believe I now have four. I I have not used the others. But this is the Bible I speak from and I do not mark it. But over a period of time, if I forget where something is, I know where it is on the page. And I've been through the experience, and by the way, this is also large print. That's why there's four of them. (laughs) And I found out that the new edition of it moved things around a little bit. But I'm like most of the ministers And over a period of time, if you've been in God's church for a period, you may not necessarily remember the verse, but you remember, I know it's up on the left-hand corner. So you can flip a couple pages and bang, you're right there. And it's important to me. I actually purchased two. I mentioned it in church. I, by the way, four is enough. Because I mentioned in a church, and I had two brethren separately and individually come to me and say, Well, Mr. Greer, I have a copy of that, and I'd like to give it to you. So I, I now have four. Are there things in the Bible that are so very clear that today are ignored? I'd like to point out just one area. It actually has to do with the resurrection. It's... Ignored. There are many things, but I speak specifically of a promise that God has given. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. There are thousands of churches that cannot explain that passage. They ignore it. They say, well, we have to have a mission all." No, but the reality is, what do they then ignore? Well, there are literally billions of people today on this planet who have no interest in their missionary. Is that the only time God says it? No, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But that isn't happening. It's not the world we live in. In fact, at this very present time, those who call themselves Christian are no longer first in terms of numbers of this world. I'm not talking about true Christianity. Those who simply refer to themselves and identify themselves as Christian. We live in a world today where those who identify themselves as Muslim or Islamic are a larger body and growing faster, much faster. We also have the, perhaps the very largest group of those who deny that there is a God who have no faith. And that group is also rapidly growing. And yet the Bible says, we read the same thing in Romans chapter 2. Because I say same thing because it is the question. How could this be true? And what we see and God say because it's part of the same issue, there is no partiality with God. How can God say, I'm not partial. I want everyone to be saved. But there are billions of people who have absolutely no interest in If you search the scripture, if you open your mind and say, is there an answer? And you begin to search the Bible, then you find an answer. But you have to first accept the literal statement of God, that what he said is true. And we understand the answer to that, brother, because it's revealed to us how? By understanding the promises of the resurrection. That understanding came through obedience to keeping God's holy days, to beginning to look at and say, what is the purpose and what is God doing? And so I'd like to go forward to that understanding, because if you look at the Scripture, and you look at all the passages and promises there's only one place that they're brought together, and that understanding, in a sense, gels. It's like having the ingredients for a cake, and they're all there, they're all present. You know they're important. You cannot toss any of them out, but you don't have a cake. And when my wife does that, I come in. I, well, I don't do it anymore. I have to watch my sugars and all. But I used to come in hoping it was chocolate of some kind, and I'd be you know, <laughs> lifting a bit of the ingredients, that is the chocolate, or maybe nuts or whatever, snacking. But the really good product is when it comes right out of the oven, fills the whole house with the odor. I wasn't, we st- were staying in the Fairfield. They baked cookies. It was terrible coming in. They were baking cookies at 4 o'clock. They, The odor just filled the lobby. I fled to the elevator. (laughs) And I will confess, with two cookies. (laughs) But I didn't eat them right away. A little now, a little later, because I do have to wash my sugar. Let's read where God gives us that understanding. It's in the book of Revelation. He brings it together. It was a vision given to God's servant John, but it's a great inspiration to us brother because it answers some of the very important questions it directs not not only our understanding of what lies ahead which in part actually is in 1 Corinthians because in 1 Corinthians it very plainly says that Christ is the first of the first fruits and then it goes on to say first Corinthians chapter 15 verse 23 that each man in his own order. But it's in Revelation then that that order, that understanding is then revealed. And because I respect the instruction of stay within four o'clock, we will be referring to that and reading in Revelation. (laughs) So you can put it in your notes. In Revelation chapter 20... John saw as he was given a vision by God. What's interesting was the vision he actually reacted to. It wasn't just watching. Maybe a little bit like 3D, but I don't think so. Uh, if you've been to 3D, maybe with a group of people and got your glasses on, and you're watching and suddenly something comes out. I remember being down in Disneyland, I believe it was. We were in Florida uh, and we were watching a video. I do not see from one eye. I have not for my adult life. And and so 3D, I enjoy the audience almost more than the picture. (laughs) And so I was sitting there and and my wife, and we had other family members with us, and something, they're all ducking, you know. And then every I remember everybody jumping and screaming. There was a little bit of air that came up under the skirts and along. I even reacted then, but but I mean, that was in combination with something else. And, and, the, and I remember my wife, I don't remember she screamed. I don't think it was very loud, was very dignified, uh, very womanly. <laughs> A feminine, graceful expression of surprise. (laughs) I will be going home with her. (laughs) I suspect what John experienced would be more what we think of as virtual reality. Because we see as we read that he actually reacted. He at times fell down. He went through, I have to believe it was a very emotional experience. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 tells us, Then I saw. So he was seeing. This was a part of what God revealed to him. It speaks of Satan being cast into a bottomless pit. A seal was set on him so that he should deceive. Verse 3, the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. After those things, he must be released for a little while. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. It's interesting, brethren, I don't think we tend to notice this, but the first thing he saw were thrones. It says, then I saw. If you think about it, why did he first see thrones and individuals who were placed on those positions of responsibility and authority. God's already made certain promises, brethren. We know them. David will be king of Israel. The apostles will judge, each of them, the tribes of Israel. Abraham, the Bible tells us, is the father of the faithful. It repeatedly tells us of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our father spiritually that is of this flesh. It's interesting also that in Revelation chapter 3, God says to the Philadelphia church, let no man take your crown. Christ told his disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place. In my Father's house are many offices. We read here, the first thing he saw was, in fact, thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the Word of God. But notice, this is time-specific. It doesn't go back and look back through all of human history. That certainly happened to some of those that God said, literally, He tells us, we'll judge the tribes of Israel. Some of God's servants, the apostles, all but one, were martyrs. It's time-specific to what? Who had not worshipped the beast, or his image, and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And speaking of those who lived literally at the very end of the age and who go through that period of time that the Bible speaks of as the tribulation. It's interesting because God does say of them, they will rule with him. They're part of his very family if they come to repentance. But it's just interesting when you read it to realize that very clearly here, there's a distinction that takes place. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, all of them. It's not that they did not, rather, but we sometimes talk in God's church about responsibilities and how God is building. And he certainly is. If we pay attention, we realize that if you're a part of Philadelphia, God says you have a crown. And that's important. It doesn't say it without purpose or meaning. And it's clear that what John saw has purpose. Now it goes on to say, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. If you have difficulty understanding what the Church of God teaches regarding the resurrections, the very simplest and helpful way to understand it is to draw a line, on a blank piece of paper, nice nice heavy line, and above that line are those who stand above. (laughs) Below that line, would be those who are asleep. And you simply identify with stick figure. There's only two groups prior to this point in history. Those called of God and those not called. Then you come to the time of the return of Christ. And, of course, Christ, I guess you could include him as well because you could put him above the line. And then in three days and three nights... Well, below the line, and you bring him back up as King of King and Lord of Lords, as the Lamb of God, as the one the Bible speaks of and gives us detail of in Revelations 4 and 5, in terms of the role that he will play for the very family of God and our salvation. But if you do that, then you just follow the figures, you follow each group, and put together and answer each question, what happens to each person or each party. It helps a great deal. I've had people come up and say, well, Mr. Brewer, I don't understand this this aspect, or how does this fit in. If you do that, you see it visually, you take the Scriptures, build literally the timeline. It's very clear. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. It's all right in this chapter. Let's notice what it then goes on to say. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So that's easy; we move them straight down the line to the end of the thousand years. This is the first resurrection. I met someone that I don't remember what his particular affiliation was, but he believed that he would live for a thousand years. That would be his reward. I was shocked by that. I actually asked him, "Well, who taught you that? Who's?" Who is cheating you of what God says? And he was embarrassed. He tried to pull out literature of the group he represented and, and so on. But I, I was. I was actually shocked by the fact that he would believe that. But, you know, he, was, he accepted that. He was a part of a... a I was working in my garage. Uh, I normally don't talk to people like that. It was a time in my life I had resigned the Worldwide Church of God... I was getting ready to go visit my mother and help take care of some of the things in her older farmhouse. I had been talking to Mr. Carl McNair and and been reading uh, from the Global Church of God. Uh, I actually received the first publication of the church and had Mr. Meredith's tapes and listened to the radio program, not live, but on tape. This is Rod, you know, the fishing rod. (laughs) Mr. Meredith will remember that. It was very, very inspiring to me when I first heard that. And so I was working in my garage. I was getting ready to go to to visit my mother, putting a few uh, tools together, because I knew that when I got there, probably every faucet leaked, every toilet needed to be adjusted or, or fixed and so on. And I did. That's what I did when I got there. I went through her property and her home and did what I could to put things, you know, repair and take care of things. This man came up, van came by, dropped several people out. He comes up my driveway carrying a Bible and some other things. I thought, well, I'm going to (laughs) talk. I needed a break, but I was shocked. But when you read the Scripture, you realize it very plainly tells us, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. None. God has given them eternal life. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. You know, we so often, when we talk about being kings and priests, brethren, we tend to look at Revelation 5.10. We do because it says we will reign on the earth. But what it says in Revelation 1.6 in some ways is even more powerful. Notice what it says here, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Speaking of Christ, it says, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. We'll be priests of God and kings under the authority of the Almighty. As you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you read... It says, Then comes the end. And Christ does what? He gives all things to his Father. But Christ is what? King of kings, Lord of Lords. And Christ and the Bible reveals to us that God honors the the Son and gives him authority interesting in the scripture there's a tremendous unity and a oneness between the father and son there's a kind of relationship rather that I don't think we fully comprehend and when we do it will lift us and inspire us in a way that perhaps in this flesh we cannot be inspired and lifted but it's plainly stated in the scripture We then read on in Revelation that Satan is released. Verse 13, excuse me, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead we have a line now, so we take those that are under that line and we simply extend them in. Now they suddenly are there. It's at the end of the thousand years. It's finished. God has allowed that period of time to come to an end. Perhaps that was His purpose in releasing Satan. That's always been my thought. But now He sees small, great, those that were dead, standing before God, and books were opened, the Bible. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. To us today, those whom God has called, God has opened the book of life. That's not true of the millions and billions that have never heard His name or that God has not given understanding. They may use His name. Brethren, unless God gave them understanding. And Paul describes the depth of that in Hebrews chapter 6, earlier in the chapter we read. How they tasted the good of God's Spirit, and they came to repentance. You can read it. That's not true of the vast majority of mankind. So all at once, the Scriptures that this world tends to simply ignore and do not understand. They take on tremendous meaning. Because see, within the resurrection and the understanding of it, it's not only about ourselves, which is very, very important and encouraging, but also, brethren, it's inspiring to know the love that God has. It extends to all mankind. And the God, in fact, as he says in Romans, is not partial. That he's going to get, indeed give every living human being the opportunity for salvation, to be a part of his family. So the books were open, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. If you're new in the church of God and you keep God's holy days, you will hear a sermon on the last great day that will fully expound in detail this promise. But it's a great inspiration to all of us. All of us who are part of the Church of God and have understood this for years, it's an incredible inspiration, a comfort. It is a time, brethren, in our lives but there may be troubled waters, maybe the loss of a family member. I've lost my mother and father. It was very comforting to know. God provided still waters to know of his love for them. And that's true for all of us. There are people we've loved that God simply has not opened their understanding. I have a son that God has not called. And yet, I know God loves him. And God will give him. Whether in this life, perhaps, I don't know, but I know in the future. You know, the resurrection is very basic teaching and doctrine of the church of God. And it's one, brethren, that we should review and look at and think about and god has given us incredible evidence and in, in every way to know that jesus christ our lord and savior was resurrected and it's something that is an anchor of our soul it's something that strengthens us and when we go through the physical things of this life maybe sometimes you know, it's easy to get distracted it's easy to get offended or hurt or to see someone go through a trial It's when we need the anchor. It's when we need, brethren, to really get down to the really basic things of what am I doing and why am I here and what has God promised and why has He called me and to get our attention focused on what truly counts. The opportunity that God has given to us. And He's given us incredible opportunity. As we read in Verse 6 of Revelation 20, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. God's given us an incredible opportunity at a time when we can do something that generations before us in some ways did not have the opportunity. We can, as a very small body of people, reach out. Literally. And speak to millions. We do that through the telecast. We can publish something and it goes out to 400,000 plus people who have an interest. That was not possible. Just a few years ago, not that many years ago. We have access to an internet literally where people can come at any time, day or night. If they have any interest or question that they literally are seeking, they can have access. That's a wonderful thing. But do you know what that means to each of us? The opportunity we have? I'd like to conclude by reading to you and think about what it says. Because we have, in a way, that has never really been available to anyone up to this time. An opportunity to... Let's notice Daniel chapter 12. We have this door, this opportunity, in an unprecedented manner. It says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness. Never have God's people had such an opportunity to turn so many. When Paul traveled, he could speak. He had behind him the powerful witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And it swept that time. But he did not have the internet. He could not hand out magazines and booklets. He did not have access to public media that would go literally, as he spoke, across the world. As many as the doors that those whom God called would support would reach out. But we do. We have an unprecedented opportunity. But notice what it says. It says those who turn many to righteousness, they will shine how like the stars forever and ever.